The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. One of the places I love to be more than anywhere is out in the great outdoors. If I could be anywhere other than Maranatha Bible Church on a Sunday morning. I would be somewhere out in nature in God's creation and if I could get up next to an alpine lake or sitting by a stream cascading down the side of a mountain, that's, that's my happy place. I, I love being outside in God's creation, constantly amazed and in awe of the natural beauty of what God has made. And so when I come to Scripture, I'm often intrigued when I come to passages that describe nature, and in particular, that describe God's sovereign control over it. You know this, you you come to Scripture and you read numerous times evidences of the fact that God is the Lord of nature. He is king of all creation. And from Genesis to Revelation, there is clear testimony of the fact that he sits as king over all that he has made. From Genesis 1, which describes him creating everything in six literal 24-hour days, to Genesis 6 and 7, describing the flood as God unleashed a deluge from the heavens and broke open the fountains of the deep to release torrents of water to the plagues on the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. We see him providing manna and meat for his people as they wandered in the desert and caused the sun to stand still in Joshua and protected Daniel in the lion's den. And we know in the tribulation in the future, there's coming a day when God is going to bring great devastation on this earth as he brings this created order into chaos for a season till he judges this world and prepares people for the return of his son. God is the Lord of nature. And so if someone comes saying that they're God, they better be able to have sovereign control over nature. And that's what we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has complete and utter control over all of creation, over disease, over sickness, over every aspect of nature. And we saw back in Matthew chapter 8 as he calmed the raging sea, and we're going to see it again this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 14. This proves Jesus' deity. This proves that he is God in human flesh. And Matthew wants us to understand this. He wants us to know that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And he wants us to know who we are. What I find amazing in some of these accounts is that we see clear demonstrations of the fact that Jesus is God in human flesh, and yet at the same time, these things are meant to reveal things about us and our weaknesses and our doubts and our fears. What I love about these interactions that we've been seeing in the book of Matthew is on the one hand, they highlight Jesus' sovereign control over nature, and yet on the other hand, we see the frailty and the weakness 
of people. We're going to see these brought together this morning as we come to Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36. Again, we see another miracle of Jesus. We've seen them all throughout the study of the book of Matthew. We saw another one last week in his feeding of the 5,000. This morning we come to perhaps, again, one of the more well-known miracles of Jesus, and that is the fact that he can walk on water. We're going to see the fact that he is God himself. He is God incarnate, God in human flesh that proves not only is he nature's master, but it proves that he is king of this world because he is God himself. But it also highlights weaknesses in us, frailties in us, failures in us. And so many times we believe that our faith is firm until adversity hits. And we realize our faith is not what it should be. It reminds us that when we see obstacles that we face and the threats that confront us, our hearts begin to sink, our confidences vanish, and we have to cry out to the Lord for help because our faith often falters in the face of fear. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're in these situations. Maybe as you're sitting here this morning and as you're opening the Bible and you're hearing the introduction to this sermon, God is bringing to mind that situation that is bringing you fear. There's concern, your heart is troubled, you're agitated over something in your life and you thought your faith would stand, you thought that you'd be firm in your trust in the Lord until this adversity hit and now you're seeing cracks in your faith. Where do you turn? What do you do? Who's your help in situations like this? Let me read Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36. Matthew writes, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately the Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they may touch just the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Amazing miracle. 
It follows, as we said, the miracle from last week, the feeding of the 5,000, which was actually the feeding of the 20 or 25,000. There were many, many people there. It was a village-sized people that were there on that mountainside. And Jesus there met their needs. He provided for their needs. He, he confronted the disciples essentially in their lack of faith and showed that he is sufficient to provide for all those needs. And then we come this morning to this miracle, the walking of water, uh, Jesus on the water. And Jesus is going to, again, confront their weakness of faith. He's going to show them that their faith is not what it should be in the midst of their adversity. That is revealed to them. And so he's comprehending or helping them comprehend that, that their faith is not where it needs to be, that they can trust him fully. In fact, it's going to come to this point where the, the disciples, for the first time, confess Jesus is the Son of God. This is what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to see the, the supremacy of Christ, the deity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the power of Christ, and he wants us to learn to face our fears with robust faith rather than a faltering faith. And so I ask you this morning, is your confidence in Christ where it needs to be? Is your trust in the Lord where it needs to be? Or are you finding yourself in circumstances that have you fearful and troubled and discouraged and weighed down to the point that you have lost sight of the one who can help you? And so this morning, I want to give you six evidences, actually today and next week. We're not going to get to all of them today. Uh, you have to come back next week for part two. So six evidences today and next week that convincingly demonstrate Jesus' deity. Six evidences that convincingly demonstrate Jesus' deity and establish grounds for fearless faith. I know it's kind of a mouthful, but that's where we're going. Six evidences of Jesus' deity that also serve as grounds for fearless faith. Let's look at these together. First, number one, we'll begin with just the first three today. Number one, first is called sovereign authority. Sovereign authority. We're going to see as we begin this account that Jesus is in complete control of this situation. Notice verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. So remember what has happened. Jesus has just fed 25,000 people. He's provided for their needs, and the very next thing, according to verse 22, is he sends the disciples away, and he sends the crowds away. Notice it says in verse 22, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. He made them, which indicates potentially they didn't want to go, and you can't blame them. They didn't want to be separated from their Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he makes them get into the boat. The idea is he compelled them. He almost forced them to get into the boat and to leave him and to go to the other side of the lake. And then he sends the crowds away. Why? Why send everybody away? 
There's a few reasons why. First of all, we know it was getting dark. The crowds needed to disperse. They needed to go get uh, somewhere where they could rest for the evening. We also know that perhaps the, the, the crowds were interested in following him as a miracle worker. And so Jesus didn't come to thrill them with miracles. So he wants to send the crowds away. We also know that he needs some personal rest. That's why he went to that side of the lake in the first place, Mark 6 31 says, he said to them, to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest. He went there in the first place to get some rest. Look at verse 23. We'll look at it in just a moment. He also needed to pray. So he sends everybody away. There's another reason, though. Matthew doesn't tell us, but John does. John 6, verses 14 and 15 says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who's come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. There's something the crowds wanted at this moment. They've just been fed. Their bellies are full. They've seen a miracle displayed right before their eyes. And Jesus perceives their hearts. He knows that they want to take him by force and make him king. His time is not for that yet. He's not at that point in his redemptive timeline. They are looking for the wrong things. They want deliverance from Rome. They want their needs met. They want someone who can give them food when they want it. They want someone who can care for their physical needs. And so Jesus is perceiving this about the crowds. And so he knows that they want to physically seize him and put him on a throne and make him their earthly king. Jesus is not going to allow that. He also knows that his disciples could easily be swept up into this. Just imagine a moment. What's been taking place for the last few months in his ministry is he's been rejected and rejected and rejected, and his disciples have been persecuted and oppressed alongside. And so finally, there's a crowd that's recognizing who Jesus is, and they're recognizing his powers and so perhaps the tide is turning and so perhaps the disciples are looking at this and saying yeah this is about time let's bring in the kingdom let's put you on your throne Jesus and perhaps in the back of their minds there was a thought and we'll get the positions of honor that we finally are deserving of so all this is in the mix and he needs to get him out of his way. He, he needs to, in a sense, uh, get his distance for just a moment from the crowds and from the disciples. There's some things that the disciples need to learn in this situation. They need to know that he's not going to be involved in king-making. And so he swiftly and firmly dismisses them and says, disciples, go away. It's not out of unkindness. He's not being unloving to them. So he sends the crowds away. Notice verse 22. And he sends the disciples to the other side. 
Other side of what? The other side of the lake. They're on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee by Bethsaida, and he wants to send them to the west side of the lake. So he's going to send them across the lake in a boat. They're going to go, look at verse 34, to the land of Gennesaret. That is the west side of the Sea of Galilee towards the north. So they're in the northeast side. He wants them to go to the northwest side. So he puts them in the boat. He sends them on their way. And notice everyone does what Jesus says. Crowds disperse, the disciples leave. Who's in control here? Not the crowds and not the disciples, it's Jesus. He's firmly in control. They all do exactly what he tells them to do. So notice the sovereign control that Jesus possesses, not only over nature, which we'll see in just a moment, but over everything in this entire situation. He is the sovereign authority in this incident. Notice verse 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. I want you to picture this scene for just a moment. He has sent the disciples away. The crowds are gone. It's evening. It's getting dark. And Jesus is on a hillside on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee all by himself. And what does he do? He prays. Matthew doesn't frequently tell us about Jesus praying alone, but we had it back in Matthew 6 where Jesus told the disciples to go into a room and close the door and pray. So he's told them about that. Now he's modeling it himself. Mark 1.35 also says, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. This is what he did periodically through his public ministry. He would retreat from from his ministry, retreat from the public to get himself away so that he could get himself in a place where he could spend time alone with the Father. He knows at this moment in his ministry, he must pray. And I wonder, speculating here, I wonder if it's because there's some temptation. The crowds are amassing around him, and they are wanting to make him king. And essentially, he could take that kingdom right then and right there. He could bypass the cross. He could bypass the agony and the pain of taking the sin of the world upon him. Is it possible that the crowds and their enthusiasm for him are creating a tempting situation, and he knows in that moment he needs to go and be with the Lord? I don't know. It's speculation, but regardless, he needs to pray. He needs to pray for himself, he needs to pray for the crowds he's just ministered to, and he has to pray for his disciples who need to learn something in this incident that we're about to see. Jesus spent a lot of his time in prayer. Before he chose the disciples, he prayed for them. Before he discharged them the night before his arrest, he spent the whole night in prayer, the high priestly prayer. Garden of Gethsemane, before his actual arrest and crucifixion, he's praying. Jesus understood the importance of prayer, and he knew that it was necessary for a faithful life and ministry. Listen to Charles Bridges. 
describe this. He says, our blessed master's example is here much to be observed. As man, he had most responsible concerns to transact with God. Nothing important was done without prayer. His entrance on his ministry was with prayer. His ordination of his first ministers was preceded by a whole night of prayer. After a day spent in works of instruction and mercy, time was redeemed from sleep for this sacred employment. Jesus needed to pray. Because as Bridges says, nothing important was done without prayer. What an example to us. What an example of of a man who understands the importance of prayer. This is communion with God. This is him interacting with his father. This is how relationships happen. Communication, talking with one another. And the same is true for us. God communicates to us through his word. That's how he speaks to us today through the scriptures. And we talk to him in prayer. That's how you nurture a relationship with the father. You want to know the Lord? You want to have a relationship with him? Prayer is one of our lifelines because he speaks speaks to us in his word, we speak to him in prayer. This is the great privilege that we have, even as believers. We have the privilege of bringing our request before the Lord. We have the privilege of approaching the throne of grace to ask for help in time of need. We have the privilege of casting our burdens between us and the Lord, of casting them upon him. Someone has said, no, pow- no prayer, no power. Little prayer, little power. Much prayer, much power. Luther said it this way. He said, prayer is like breathing. Do you think of prayer this way? Do you think of prayer like breathing? Do you understand that nothing important in life is done without prayer? And do you understand that in prayer, you are exposed to the white-hot righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who then transforms you and makes you into his image and draws you to himself, and that is one of the means by which God sanctifies us and grows us. We could say it this way, prayer is one of the leading features of our character. It's one of the leading features of our character. And so can I ask you this morning, what does your prayer life say about your character? What does your prayer life say about your dependence upon the Lord? If Jesus, the Son of God, recognized that he needed to pray, How much more is this true of us? So what does your prayer life say about your walk with the Lord? What does your prayer life say about your relationship with Christ? What does your prayer life say about your level of dependence upon the Lord? And what does it say about your character? 
I was reading again Charles Bridges. He gave a little illustration of this. Let me read it to you. He was speaking of a man, a pastor by the name of Fletcher, and he, he describes this man's prayer life. Let me expose you to this and ask you to evaluate your own prayer life against this example. He says, quote, it was said of Fletcher that his deepest and most sensible communications with God were enjoyed in those hours when the door of his closet was shut against human creatures as well as human cares. His closet was his favorite retirement to which he constantly retreated whenever his public labors allowed him for a season of leisure. His public labors, astonishing as they were, bore but little proportion to those internal exercises of prayer and supplication to which he was wholly given in private. The former, of necessity, were frequently discontinued, but the latter were almost uninterruptedly maintained from hour to hour because he lived in the spirit of prayer. That's how Jesus lived, in the spirit of prayer. That's how that man lived, in the spirit of prayer. Let me ask you, how do you live? Do you live in the spirit of prayer? Do you live in a level of dependence on the Lord which is manifest and reflected in your prayer life? So notice this first scene, sovereign authority. Jesus dismisses the crowds, he sends the disciples away, and he's been praying well into the night by himself, and in the meantime, the disciples have been in a boat. This brings us to number two, divine Insight. Number two, divine insight. Jesus knows something about their situation. He understands where they're at. He knows what's going on. Even though he's distant from them and he's not in the boat with them as he was in Matthew chapter 8, he knows something about their situation. So notice verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Matthew tells us we're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, a long ways from that land. That's not where they were supposed to be. They were supposed to travel from the northeast side of the lake to the northwest side of the lake along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, maybe a mile or two out from shore. And here Matthew tells us that a storm has erupted to the point that they are now a long distance from the land, the wind has come up, and they're being battered by the waves. So imagine this scene. These were seasoned fishermen. They understood this. This is not the first time they've been in a storm. They know what the Sea of Galilee is like. By the way, you may remember it's 700 feet below sea level. And so cold winds rush down from the area mountains and they hit the surface of the Sea of Galilee and they create these massive squalls that form up very quickly and create sudden and violent storms. This is what happens on this lake on a regular basis. You can go out to the Great Lakes. Maybe you've been out to Lake Michigan or Lake Superior. You've seen these kinds of things before. You know how these lakes form these kind of storms and they just come up out of the middle of nowhere. That's what's happening. Look back in Matthew chapter 8. Go back just a couple chapters to Matthew 8. Remember, this is not the first time they've encountered this before. Matthew 8, verses 23 
and 24. Remember, we've studied this. Matthew 8, 23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus was asleep in the boat. I love that, don't you? Great picture. Massive storm that's raging, and there's Jesus, he's asleep, it's okay. They've been here before, they know what this storm is like. This one is terrifying though, and it's deadly and it's serious because notice in verse 24, it says the wind was contrary. They were traveling from east to west and they were clearly going into the teeth of this wind, unable to make any headway. Because of the winds, the waves were battering, verse 24, battering their boat. The word is bastanizo, torture, torment, harass. These waves were seriously uh, coming against this little craft with these disciples in it. And because of all of this, verse 24 says they were a long distance from the land. They were supposed to be close to the shore. They're now out in the middle of the lake. The winds are raging, the waves are Huge, Mark tells us in Mark 6, 48, they were straining at the oars for their lives. And where's Jesus? Up on a mountain? Not there. And yet, there with them. He knows. He knows what's going on. He's not physically present, but he knows what's going on. He's, he's understanding what's going on. Of course, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows and sees all things. He understands all things. There's nothing that has escaped his attention. He knows exactly what's happening to his disciples. In fact, he put them in this situation. Don't miss that. He sent them into the storm. Why? Because there's something the disciples needed to learn. And they needed to learn that no matter what circumstances they're in, they are safe all along the way. They needed to understand that though he could not see them physically, he was with them. Though they could not perceive him, they, he was there. They needed to learn this. They needed to understand this. They needed to understand what Proverbs 15.3 says, that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. They needed to understand what Hebrews 4.13 says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus knows everything. He's aware of everything, so you're never alone. This is what they needed to learn. They hadn't learned this yet. Their faith is small. It's, it's there in seed form. It's growing. It's, it's maturing. But they needed to understand this because they don't have a full orb understanding by faith of God's protection and provision for them. This tells us something very important. Listen very carefully. Sometimes God puts us in circumstances to strengthen our faith. Sometimes God puts us in circumstances that are meant to 
discipline us because of sin. Of course, Hebrews 12 tells us that trials are one of the means by which God disciplines us. So one of the first questions we all should ask when we find ourselves in trials and in adversity is, is there sin in my life? Is the Lord disciplining me? Hebrews 12 says he disciplines those whom he loves. And so we should ask the question, is there any sense in which God is disciplining me? But if there's no sin in our life, then we have to ask the question, what else is he doing? And one of the things he could be doing by putting us in these trials, just like the disciples, is to force us to learn to have our faith stretched, to grow, to mature. What happens to a muscle that doesn't get exercised? It atrophies. It gets weak, scrawny, small. So what do you do? You work that muscle out. You flex it. You, you put it under pressure. You put it under weight. You test it so that it grows. It, it develops. It becomes bigger. It becomes stronger. That's what trials are for the Christian life. They're the crucible in which our faith is meant to grow. And so sometimes God in his kindness to us, in his love for us, in his mercy to us, in his goodness to us, actually puts us in difficult situations to enable our faith to grow. Why? Because we don't learn well in comfortable situations, right? Do you understand this? Do you agree with this? We don't learn well in comfortable situations. Our faith gets atrophied when life is easy and comfortable, when we don't have to have our faith stretched. We can just coast through life. That feels really nice, but that's not good for our spiritual lives. So sometimes God in his wisdom puts us in a trial so that we can be in the schoolhouse of life. Sanctification, growing, maturing so that he can show us his goodness, his faithfulness, his strength, his power, his control. And sometimes he does this because we haven't learned the lesson yet. Disciples hadn't learned it yet. They should have known that Christ was with them. They should have understood that he would take care of them. They should have had a robust confidence that whatever was going on in their life, their master, their Lord, the disciple, or Jesus Christ would take care of them. They hadn't learned this principle yet. And so he puts them in this trial. He sends them right into this storm. I want to ask you just for a moment, are, are there troubles and trials in life that you're in right now? Maybe I should ask it this way. What are the troubles and trials of life that you're currently in? Someone has well said, you've either just come out of a trial, you're in between trials, or you're about ready to head into another trial. That's kind of the Christian life. And so is it possible that the Lord in his kindness to you is actually using all of this, using that circumstance, the, the crucible in which you are in to stretch your faith, to cause you to trust him so that you see he is faithful to you. It's really easy when life is smooth and easy to say, I'll trust the Lord. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then it comes down to it and the adversity hits and the question is, do you really trust him? This is what the disciples needed to learn. And so Jesus, in his wisdom, in his omniscience, in his sovereignty, actually puts them into that situation so that they can learn it. And then, notice verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. 
Fourth watch. The Romans had divided the night into four watches from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., that's the first watch. 9 p.m. to midnight, second watch. Midnight to 3 in the morning, third watch. 3 in the morning to 6 in the morning, fourth watch. This is the fourth watch. Why didn't he come in the first watch? Or the second watch? Or the third watch? Because he wanted them to learn. He wanted them to be stretched. So if he's coming in the fourth watch, somewhere between three and six in the morning, listen, that means that Jesus has been up on the mountainside all that time. He's been praying for most of that time, and the disciples have been rowing for most of that time, seven, eight, nine hours. By the way, that tells us something, that Jesus sometimes leaves us in situations for a while. You ever said, why is this happening, Lord? And why isn't this ending? And why is this continuing to go on? And why are we still in this trial? And why hasn't this thing stopped? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why, Lord, is this going on so long? Do you think the disciples might have been asking this question? Nine hours into rowing? Sometimes God leaves us there. He knows the circumstances that we need to learn, the lessons that we need to learn. And so sometimes he knows that we need to be stretched and he brings us to the end of ourselves so that we truly trust him and we truly abide. And he could have come in the first watch, but he's stretching their faith. And so in the fourth watch, verse 25, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. (laughs) Don't you love it? Don't you love how Matthew writes this? As if this is common every day. This happens all the time. You know, Jesus, he's just walking on the sea. Do, do, you, do you understand this? He's walking on the sea. This has never been done before. And here's Jesus approaching this little boat of battered sailors walking on the water. It should not surprise you that liberal Scholars have tried to explain this away. Well, there was a reef. There was a sandbar. That's really what was going on, that he was just walking on really shallow water, really, in the middle of the lake. I don't think so. And by the way, that reasoning falls apart because Peter, who tries the very same thing in the very next moment, sinks. There's no sandbar here. Jesus is walking on the water, defying the laws of physics. No one has ever done this before. No one has done it since. This is clear proof that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is God in human flesh. By the way, I think there's an allusion here to Job 9, verse 8. Who alone stretches out the heavens And who alone tramples down or treads upon the waves of the sea? The answer, who alone does that? It's God. This is a reference to deity. This is proof that he is exactly who he says he is. And he's with them. And he knows what's going on. And he understands their situation. So sovereign authority, divine insight. Number three. 
tender comfort. Tender comfort. Look at verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Ghost is the word phantasma, phantasma. Where we get our word phantasm, a, a ghost, an apparition. And th- this is what they think they're seeing. They, they think a disembodied spirit could do this, but not a real human body. There's no way this could happen. And so they're gripped with fear. They're struggling. They're crying out in terror over what they're seeing. And on the one hand, you can't blame them, can you? Put yourself in their situation. Would you be like, hey, everything's fine? This is a troubling situation. Storm is raging. Waves are battering the boat. Wind is strong. And now there's some ghost on the horizon that's coming toward me. You can't blame them for being a little afraid. However, they shouldn't have been. Because as I said, they've been safe all along. They just don't realize it. Because Jesus knows about their situation. He's uh, watching over them. He's caring for them. He's been praying for them. He knows everything about their current status. So they shouldn't have been given to fear. Friends, this gives us a really helpful insight into the difference between a helpful fear and a sinful fear. Let me explain those for just, just a moment. There, there is a helpful kind of fear. Uh, you should be afraid of stepping out on to 131 at rush hour. Like That should trouble your heart. You should not want to do that. And that's for your own good, your own physical protection. You should have a little fear of putting your hand upon the burner on your stove to keep you safe. That, that's a good kind of fear. And there is a good kind of spiritual fear as well. We don't want to fall into sin because of what it does and the consequences it brings us and and the temptation to succumb to those sins and all of the effects that that has upon our life. There, There is a healthy sense of fear. But there is a sinful fear. In fact, I would say most most fear is probably sinful because it takes our eyes off God. It keeps us from seeing what God is doing. It forces us to focus on our circumstances. It makes us forget that God uses everything in this world to accomplish his will, and it arises in our hearts when we forget that God is on his throne. That's where sinful fear usually leads to. We, we forget he's our protector. We forget that he's trustworthy. Our view of God gets too small, and we forget that he's able to handle the things in our life. And so I would submit to you that sinful fear is always destructive. It's not good for us to succumb to fear. It usually leads to consequences and paralysis and and leads us to despair and hopelessness. Lou Priolo has written a little book on fear, breaking its grip. He captures well the danger of this kind of fear when he says the fear monster has gripped you by the throat. 
lifted you off your feet and pinned you against the wall. And there you are, dangling in the air, caught in his stranglehold, unable to breathe, unable to move, unable even to cry for help. As he squeezes your throat tighter and tighter, all you can do is look down at that stark, grotesque face of this monster called fear whom you dread more than almost anything else. That's what sinful fear does. It takes our eyes off God. It paralyzes us. And it renders us ineffective. And the reason it's so dangerous is because it drives us to sacrifice things that are important to gain comfort. That's the danger of fear. It causes us to sacrifice the things that we know are true and we know are important in order to gain the comfort that we're seeking. And so in the end, we end up seeking for things that don't satisfy and we skip over the Lord who sustains and strengthens and is our true help. So I want to ask you this morning, is it possible that your fear is actually sinful fear? That situation that I asked you to think about just a moment ago, is there such a fear in your heart that it is keeping you from, from truly trusting the Lord and keeping you from truly walking with the Lord? And is it enabling you to, to, to lead to other things and driving you to other things that actually prevents you from placing your complete faith and confidence in God who's your rock and your fortress and your strength and your help? These disciples are terrified. On the one hand, you can't blame him. On the other hand, what do they need to learn? You should never be afraid. If you know the Lord and you trust that he is able to sustain you and help you in whatever circumstances you are in, you never need to fear. Especially when you hear what Jesus says in verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Are those not the greatest words you could hear in that situation? Your boat's about ready to sink. You're being battered. You're terrified. You're being followed by a ghost. And he says, don't worry. It's me. It's me. Christ. Take courage, friends. Cheer up. It's all right. Don't be afraid. And I want you to notice that little phrase tucked between those two exhortations. It is I. It is I. Ego eimi. I am. And if you remember your Old Testament, what did God say to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when he's standing at the burning bush? I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you to me. It's a personal name of God. Remember every time Jesus says in the book of John, I am something, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, the life. What's he saying? I'm God. This is what you have here. Jesus is essentially saying to the disciples, it's okay, God is with you. I'm here. 
I'm with you. Friends, this is so instructive to us. This is what they needed to know. This is what they needed to learn. In the midst of the adversities of life, they're still safe. And they're safe because God is present and he's there and he's very real in his presence. So can I ask you this morning as you're thinking about the troubles and the trials of of your life, Have you concluded essentially what the disciples included, that Jesus is essentially a phantom and he's not real? Or do you believe that wherever you are and whatever you're going through and whatever circumstances you are in right now, no matter the situation that you are going through, that nothing will dislodge you from him if you are Christ and therefore you have no reason ever to fear. Do you believe that? Because sometimes God puts us in those circumstances to grow us and stretch us and teach us those things that we don't want to learn. So I promise you, he's real. He is faithful, he's trustworthy, he's dependable. You can rely on him and he is sufficient to meet your needs in whatever circumstances you are in. Do you believe that, friends? Father, thank you for confronting us with these realities. Lord, we confess that Too often our eyes are too focused on ourselves. Our eyes are too myopic to see beyond our present circumstances. And so we need reminders like this. Sometimes in your love and your kindness and your grace and your mercy, you put us in situations that make our faith be stretched. And we thank you for those because it increases our trust in you. It makes us see how insufficient our resources are and enables us, Lord, to cast our burdens onto you, seeing you for who you are, that you are our stronghold, you are our help, you are our rock, you are our fortress. And so, Father, I pray for us as a church that we would be those who are not initially like the disciples, gripped with sinful fear, but instead, Father, would be those who place our confidence and our certainty and our joy in our Savior who is able to calm the storms of our life. Help us not to waver in unbelief. Help us not to falter in the face of fear. But may Christ become all the more precious to us in the adversities, in the trials, as we see him sustaining and helping us to our good and to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.